Welcome back to another one of our Six Questions podcasts. I'm Trent England for Save Our States. Glad to have you uh, with me and very glad to wel welcome back to the program, Mike Russell. He is Vice President of Communications at CRC Advisors out in the Washington, D.C. area where he is focused on what's going on in politics, not just in Washington, D.C., but all across the country. Uh, Mike, welcome back to Six Questions. Great to be with you, Trent. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas to you and uh, yeah, to all of our viewers and listeners out there. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. This will be our uh, our wrap-up show for 2022. We'll be back oh, wow. in the year. So, so, Mike, let's just get right into it. I mean, the question on a lot of people's minds after last month, what what happened in the midterm elections? And, you know, is this properly characterized as a setback, uh, particularly for the, the issues that we care about, like election in, integrity? What uh, what do you think about what happened in November? Well, you know, I think everybody uh, who was really following the election process closely, Trent, myself in that mix, and I know you and your fine group with Save Our States, Obviously, looking at uh, developments, not just uh, in, you know, from a national perspective, but regionally as well. But it, it was uh, it, it was clearly a mixed bag for both political parties here. We the those of us who were hoping for a decisive uh, majority for Republicans in the House are now looking at, you know, an election result that turned out a slim majority. Senate still maintained control of the majority, uh, Democrats maintain control of the uh, the majority in the U.S. Senate. But, you know, they have some tough sledding ahead in the next election. They have several contentious races coming in 2024. And so we might actually see the balance of power shift in the Senate. Uh, and we might, uh, if we if we stay true to the messages that uh, your organization and, and many uh, folks uh, on the conservative side of the aisle were espousing, uh, if we stay true to to some of these messages about the need for election integrity, the the need for strengthening election laws, the need to preserve the national uh, uh, election process, you guys work uh, so hard on uh, preserving the electoral college, and now this issue of ranked choice voting is is increasing uh, in terms of um, the push by the left. Yeah, these are these are going to be big issues uh, driving voters' concerns. I think headed into twenty twenty four. Uh, and I, I do believe, uh, it, that while this election was definitely a mixed bag for Republicans, uh, I do believe that if we stay true to uh, continuing to educate and inform voters, uh, we're going to see gains in the House uh, in, 2020, in 2024, and we could very well uh, main, uh, establish a, a majority in the United States Senate. Mike, you mentioned ranked choice voting, and that's question number two on the podcast you know, this is something that it just it seems to me all of the sudden a lot of the election folks on the political left and a handful of you know people who sort of view themselves as centrists have latched on to this what I would view as very convoluted. It's a mess about how to conduct <laughs> elections. But yeah, I mean, Mike, why? Why is this so dangerous? And maybe if you you know if you have any theories on on why all of a sudden it, it strikes me as maybe there's some groupthink going on in the left. Uh, but uh, but what do you think, Mike Russell? I I you know it, I really scratch my head over the whole popularity behind these two issues that you all are so focused on. One is trying to dodge around or eliminate the electoral college for some sort of popular vote 
and it's not and it's not a popular vote. It's 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 an idea that's pushed by elitists in California and big deep pocketed liberal uh, activists. And then this this whole idea of ranked choice voting, which is is the most convoluted mess. I mean, if if we think we have some issues, and we do. Uh, concerning voters and their confidence in our election process and their belief that elections are held, you know, uh, and, and, and results can be delivered swiftly and accurately. There are legitimate voter concerns in this country, in many regions of the country, around the whole question of election integrity, efficiency, honesty, that type of thing. And in this ranked choice voting mess, it's just, it's an absolute quagmire for people to try to wrap their brain around is only going to cause uh, just chaos, I think, to our election system. What's prompting it? I, I honestly don't know, but I suspect that it's more of this sort of why we want to eliminate the Electoral College for this national popular vote scheme that the, the left has been pushing for so long. It seems to me that when the left gets panicked about election cycles, and they're going to have a tough one coming up in 2024, then we hear more and more about these new and improved uh, voter uh, election processes, where you know whether it's ranked choice voting or national popular vote, uh, we're gonna we're gonna try to dial up a new system here that's going to be fair, and where you hear words like every vote counts. And the other thing that the ranked choice voting folks are pushing, Trent, and I know you know this, it's it's like oh well, if we if we do ranked choice voting. Uh, then you know more moderate, more acceptable candidates are going to fill in to these gaps and and win office. And that's that spin. It's a hundred percent just spin, and it's not true. What ranked choice voting is going to cause is far more candidates entering races, and then the great possibility that if you don't play this game, if you don't you know say you have an election that has six or seven candidates on it, and you don't rank your choices for all six or seven then guess what happens? Your vote likely gets tossed out. And so the whole concept of doing what you want to do as a citizen, doing what we should do as a citizen, and that's register to vote, show up, participate in our election process, that takes some time and effort. And so if people do this, and then they don't want to play this ranked choice voting game, and they only vote for their one person, their one candidate, what happens? Their ballot gets pitched. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just, it's a complete mess. People are not going to understand it. And it's going to open the door, I think, for two things. One, widespread litigation around uh, virtually every election, state or national, even maybe local uh, races. And, and all of a sudden, you're going to see these, these state officials who are supposed to oversee the state election process, uh, whether they're secretary of states or whatever, uh, empowered in ways that we can't even begin to describe. All these states are going to do this differently. So we're going to create little election kings and queens in 50 states here with this process in terms of how are we going to adjudicate and move through our elections. And that's that's a big, big mess. And, and I, I hope uh, yeah. your organization, Trent, and others are going to continue to shed light on this and educate people about the realities of ranked choice voting. So ironically, Mike, the other side, when they're pushing national popular vote, <clears throat> when they're pushing ranked choice voting, you know, when they're pushing, you know, all of this early voting and, you know, no excuse absence, everybody votes by all these things. 
they they oftentimes make this same sort of claim that that we make that well these are these are going to increase civic participation they're going to increase people's engagement with the elections uh, which I mean it it strikes me as sort of fanciful and you know kind of uh, you know it's a little bit of lipstick on a on a pig there but <laughs> what's your what's your response to to that specifically because that is a big part of their argument which I think recognizes that that they understand, we understand, everybody understands that American voters want to have more faith in the system. And so what, you know, what's wrong with their, their argument or their understanding of how that works? Well, it, it's, again, you know, they're making statements, they have no empirical data to back up the fact that, quote, unquote, moderate candidates are going to sweep into office, or quote, unquote, more people are going to participate in the process, or that confidence in the election system is going to be strengthened. I would argue no to all of those, to everything that they're trying to say on this. Uh, people are going to be more confused. And if we think, like I said earlier, if we think we're going to have speedy results that are tabulated, votes counted efficiently, correctly, professionally, if we think we're going to have less of that problem uh, with a system that says, oh, let's have six, seven, eight candidates in the mix. And then if the first one doesn't win, then those votes roll over to the next. And if the next one doesn't win, then those votes roll over. And that is more confusing to me, uh, just on a personal level. And I'm sure to millions of others, once they start to really open their eyes and look at what what the system potentially could mean for their 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 state, their town, uh, it, it's it's going to create far more confusion. And the other thing too, Trent, is you know people uh, we we see this in surveys all the time. Uh, more you know, three out of every four voters wants to see election integrity strengthened in this country. We've seen surveys that that bolster that figure. That people have legitimate concerns about how the election process works. They want it strengthened. They want voter ID when you go to vote in person. And that's uh, African-American voters, Hispanic, white voters. Uh, a large majority of people say we want a process that requires voter ID when you're when you're showing up to vote in person. There's only one country in Europe, and I can't remember which one it is, that doesn't require that. So if you want to talk about something that's progressive, uh, the European model shows that the vast majority of European uh, countries require the same thing. If you show up to vote, you have to produce uh, uh, some sort of relevant picture ID. So this is this is common sense when we're talking about how to strengthen election integrity and bolster voter confidence here. Um, but what's going to happen is we're just going to open the system up for more argument, and that that division, that rancor between parties, uh, if you will, uh, that upsets the vast majority of us that we don't want to see rancor and divisiveness associated with politics, but certainly not associated with the election process. Okay, can we eliminate the election process from political rancor? And I think, uh, and I, I, I know you agree with me on this, Trent, you know, uh, a scheme like uh, ranked choice voting or doing an end around uh, the electoral college, that only increases tension and angst among voters. And once that process starts to happen uh, in significant numbers, then you see overall uh, confidence in how this country is operating decline. And again, you know, if you look at polls, a vast majority of the American people think we're headed in the wrong direction. We're on the wrong track. Our elected leaders are focusing on the wrong priorities. This is a classic example 
of the left spinning its wheels and focusing on something that people largely don't know about and certainly don't want ranked choice voting. Yeah. yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, it is it's fascinating to see some of these folks out there on the left who they get so worked up about issues that, you know, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 percent of the public, maybe more. Right. Don't even don't consider, care about. <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't care about these things. They don't consider them to be to be issues, really. Right. It's it's about you know, it's not about rewriting the rules of the game. It's it's about figuring out which direction we want to go as a, as a country. Uh, another another question on this, I'm talking on six questions here to Mike Russell, Vice President of Communications at CRC Advisors. Mike, you have been a real, uh, a real force when it comes to pushing back against ESG, DEI, and it, it seems like that that whole issue has uh, has really started to move in the conservative direction, which really just means sort of back to to common sense. But describe what this is for folks, because not everybody's going to know what ESG and DEI stand for. And, you know, is my optimism warranted here? Well, uh, I, I hope it is. Uh, ESG, this environmental social governance is really it's really this movement to push a, a political agenda onto corporate America and into government agencies. And we're and we're really seeing, um, uh, I do think the pendulum is starting to shift back a little bit, especially when ESG is foisted upon uh, corporations, you know, that, that have a responsibility to their investors and their shareholders. Um, they have a, a responsibility to, cre to create a sustainable business model and make a profit. And, and Lord knows, you know, how everybody throws their hands up on the left. You're making a profit, you know, like you're like you're some sort of a criminal. You know, that's sort of the way things need to work in corporate America. Corporations need to be built around a sustainable business model and they need to return a profit so that people can enjoy, if they're working for that particular company, a good quality of life. We're producing products here in this in, in America that people can enjoy or services that people can enjoy. And and we're generally becoming a self-sustainable country. We've had we've done that for decades and now all of a sudden people are suggesting that that's some sort of uh, uh, negative. But but this uh, environmental so, uh, uh, social governance is this effort to really push uh, uh, it can, and it can be any number of politically correct messages through corporate America. And we're starting to also see government agencies weaponized this way where they're either taking on this uh, politically correct um, agenda to run internally, or they're being utilized in ways to enforce this environmental, uh, these environmental regs and, and policies that, that could be applied to various corporations. And what the, the real danger here in it is, you're, you're slowly eroding or stripping away a company's ability to sit down with its president, its board of directors, its top shareholders and say, what do we need to do as a company to focus on success, to focus on growth, to focus on job creation, and to produce quality goods and services. That's been the priority of corporate America and small businesses in this country for decade after decade. And what ESG does is move in and say, you need to set all that aside, essentially, and focus on you know, what can you do uh, from a green energy standpoint? Or what can you do to reduce your carbon footprint? Or what can you do to have uh, you know, the perfect balance in terms of mix of people on your board. 
And I've, I, I always talk to folks uh, when, when you start to control who can be on a board of directors for a company, publicly or privately held, then what you're doing is you're saying, uh, we're going to take your business model and your priorities and everything that you focused on as a company and the people who built it. And we're going to throw that to the wind and we're going to tell you from a politically per, per, correct perspective how your board should look, the composition of uh, women, the composition yeah. of African-American, Hispanics, what have you. Um, and to me, what drives the qualifications for being on a board of directors is your experience and your ability to produce in that sector. You know, yeah. if, if, if you're a motorcycle expert, aficionado, and you've run businesses, uh, you know what Harley-Davidson is trying to do. You know, and perhaps you are qualified to be on that board of directors. Well, and, and also, I mean, if if government can manipulate, uh, you know, by race and sex, who's on a corporate board of directors? I, I think sometimes these corporations don't understand. I mean, if if government can do that, they can do just about anything, anything in corporate governance. Right. I mean, it's the ultimate camel's nose under the tent if they can tell them based on somebody's race. Uh, you know, who can and can't be on a corporate board of directors. It's just, I mean, I think sometimes these corporations, you know, the, the folks in the pri private industry don't really understand the agenda they're up against. Correct. And try, they're weaponizing government agencies to start to enforce it, like SEC. You know, you're going to see IRS and SEC empowered uh, to, to look at things like this. And that's just, again, why are we focused on this as a priority? Why is the left pushing this agenda where they're literally, as you said, and I think eloquently, getting the nose under the tent of how individual companies operate and telling them, dictating, mandating how their board should be uh, comprised, the composition of board members. And of course, you know, along with that comes the, the, the politically correct messages that many of these board members bring that could take a company completely off track in terms of its ability to sustain its business model, grow, hire uh, more people, um, or raise salaries for existing work for the existing workforce, yeah. all of this is misdirected, and uh, the the vast majority of the American people want an opportunity to improve their quality of life. That means a good job, uh, a rewarding career, and a good job with benefits, and you know. You're you're starting to tinker with that now. Uh, you're starting to try to meddle in that for for nothing more than politically correct reasons. Yeah, this Mike, gonna... I, I want to drill in on that because I, I just thought of something. I'm going to call a little bit of an audible here and, and uh, change up question five because I think you're hitting on something that's really interesting and might bring this ESG issue home to folks a little bit more. Is ESG part of you know, the the I'm trying not to be too hyperbolic, but I, I'll, I'll say it and then maybe I'll back up a little bit. Part of a, a class war on the part of the left where they're going to corporate America and creating an environment where instead of hiring, you know, 
ordinary Americans to do blue collar jobs, to do manufacturing, to do customer service, to, you know, work their way up through a company, they're creating an environment where you've got to go out and hire a bunch of, uh, you know, women's studies majors from Brown to work in your HR department and a bunch of, you know, environmental engineers from Grinnell uh, to come in and advise you on how to minimize, you know, the the carbon in your manufacturing mm-hmm. processes and, and skewing corporate America further towards these white collar jobs that frankly don't don't actually add that much value to our economy. Don't produce anything. Um, don't produce yeah, any quality goods. Don't produce any quality America. services. Yeah. I mean, is that is that fundamentally why an just a sort of ordinary apolitical American who, as you say, wants to be able to get a good job, doesn't want to have to take on two hundred thousand dollars in in debt for you know <clears throat> women's studies at at uh, wherever. I mean, is is that is that why people should care about ESG? It's part, I think, Trent. This this is the latest development. See, the left never stops in their attack on uh, major corporations for sure, but large businesses and and even small business owners are facing uh, a number of assaults. Look at what they've tried to do on a couple of other fronts. Let's just put ESG aside for a second. The whole push for uh, government regulations to to constrain corporations, to slap all of these additional regs on them, many of which are duplicative because they're doing the same thing at the state level, but they don't care. It's just adding on more environmental regs, adding more limits on companies to get permits and and do what they do. So they've they've had a decades long attack on corporate America through the regulations. Activists have have been lobbying now for decades to get companies uh, uh, that that are in sectors that are not politically correct. Let's just say the fossil fuel industry or oil and gas producers. They've been lobbying for folks to divest of those shares of those companies for decades now. And uh, that's an assault on corporate America. So if you don't tow the correct political line in terms of the product that you produce or the goods or services that you provide, then you're under attack to get people to not buy, you know, uh, Texaco, uh, uh, Exxon stock for uh, pension funds and and divest of, of all corporations that, that don't meet the politically correct, uh, clear the uh, politically correct bar. So those two areas have been underway uh, for those two areas of attack we've seen for a while. I, I, look, I look at ESG as another front where they're opening it up and they're trying to meddle, tinker, you know, to get under the hood of these businesses and try to slow them down from being productive uh, and force them to, you know, spend money and uh, resources, utilize resources in ways that they would not normally uh, have to expend those resources. So it's another handcuff that they're trying to slap on our ability here as a, as a country to have corporations and businesses and small businesses thrive and prosper under a free market system. This is a 100% attack against what we would describe as a free market economy. Yeah, I always think about an airplane. It's it is very cold here in Oklahoma today as we're recording this, as it is across much of the country. And I I think about you know airplanes and icing and right and you know mm-hmm. if an airplane flies through through a thunderstorm, it's very cold. It can build up uh, ice on the wings, and and to a certain point, 
that's okay. The plane keeps flying. But as you build up more and more, at a certain point, you hit you hit a tipping point, and the whole thing the whole thing is not airworthy anymore. I feel like the American economy is sort of like that. We've allowed the left to just build up this accretion of regulations and manipulations and uh, and all of this. And you know, at, at a certain point, I mean, we I think we've we've seen through two thousand eight through uh, through COVID, we've you know we've seen the uh, the wingtips start to shake a little bit. The whole thing start to falter, and it it really worries me that you, you hit a certain point and it's just not. It's not a free market economy anymore. It's not a productive economy. And, uh, you know, that plus uh, things like the federal debt, uh, you know, could could produce uh, the kind of crash that Americans have, have never seen before. But but let's we'll, we'll we'll put that we'll put that aside. I don't want to dwell on that as we're heading into Christmas. And uh, <laughs> let, let me let me ask you for question number six here. You know, it's on the one hand, the left uses government to try to influence the the private sector, and on the other hand, they use the private sector when it comes to Zuckerbucks to private funding of election, uh, you know, of government election offices. They use private money to try to influence government, which is, to me, you know, kind of the ultimate irony because the left is, as you say, they're always attacking private industry. They supposedly don't like all this, and then you know, and then when you've got Zuckerberg who's willing to uh, manipulate elections by you know funding. Uh, election offices in you know Democrat areas and not Republican areas. They right. oh that's you know what's wrong with, what's that? Wrong right. with that? Right, but, it's all uh, voter education. Yeah, you know, exactly. Let's, I mean, let's Mike spend millions us. of dollars in in and it's funny how it all yeah. it always happens in you know battleground states. Yeah. So you see the most important states in terms of you know the the number of uh, electoral votes and their significance and their weight in the election process, and you got the Zuckerbucks, which is really this. This it's tens of millions, if not hundreds yeah. of millions, that were given to state voting officials for voter education, voter turnout, oh, and to protect workers from COVID. That was what they were supposed to be spending yeah. that money on. And what we found, obviously, was they were uh, using those funds to turn out vote in decisively blue districts. So they Which were doing everything they could to turn out those voters and skew the numbers. Yeah, and, and of course, if... If, you know, if Zuckerberg and those folks want to do that on their own, sure, that's fine, right? But but they were doing this, they were giving their money to government agencies. Yes, state election officials, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just wild that anybody would defend that. But we see folks on the left, uh, I mean, they're, they're trying to defend. I think I saw New York, uh, New York Common Cause had... Um, I think they have it is one of their priorities for next year is to make sure that the the New York legislature, you know, protects that the right of private individuals to, uh, you know, and, and I think also for campaigns to be, you know, giving out, uh, you know, snacks to voters yeah. waiting in line, which is is kind of a kind of a third worldly kind of thing when you're <laughs> you're standing there saying, hey, I'm from ex political party can i you know can i give you something of value while you're preparing to vote you know uh yeah i mean yeah, i don't lady, think a, i don't think a twinkie is going to skew my vote yeah i, I mean hopefully not i, I know I, I read a couple of years ago I, the bbc had an article about how one of the the political parties in india was giving away toasters uh which is kind of like you know <laughs> like like we have black friday here and in india it's like election day you know uh, for for the mere <laughs> price of your vote, you can get a toaster. 
<laughs> well, the the Zuckerbucks uh, uh, scandal uh, isn't going away, Trent. They're going to they're going to try to do Zuckerbucks uh, Zuckerbucks 2.0, and and we already are seeing some uh, FOIA requests that uh, organizations are making because there's a suspicion that they're they're now trying to um, uh, the election engineering activists and and the voter turnout uh, activists on the left are trying to work with government agencies to get them to apply these same kinds of resources. So in other words, you know, Labor Department is now going to be involved in voter education and voter turnout. Um, and so one can only guess uh, how that uh, those resources will be directed. Uh, more often than not, then this this might be a Zuckerbucks 2.0 model where um, and they're trying to they're they're trying to uncover the memos and the email traffic to expose this. But, uh, you know, are, is is a, a government agency like the Labor Department or the Commerce Department now being guided by center left groups to try to get them to do these voter education, voter turnout uh, efforts and utilize resources from these departments to essentially turn out Democrat votes? That's going to be an yeah. interesting question to see if that's revealed. Yeah, I'll be interested to see, especially in the political world as it is today where you know heading into 2024 i mean i think it's a it's a safe bet that uh you know AFSCME and seiu members are going to skew democrat but afl cio right I mean, it'd be interesting to see if if the labor department tries to steer those things towards certain unions and certain groups that uh, you know, I I just think labor members are not as reliably Democrat uh, as as they maybe were in the in the 90s, say. So that, yeah, I, I'll be interested to see what comes of those investigations. Yeah, I mean, and Trump proved that in the first election. Uh, yeah. he, he His Rust Belt campaign strategy to essentially win uh, Reagan Democrats, going all the way back to Ronald Reagan and his ability to win uh, Democrats who were largely union workforce votes. Uh, those votes are attainable by Republicans. And that's why, you know, I think we're going to have to look at the messages as as conservatives and uh, and our party leaders are certainly going to have to look at messages that um, are going to attract more African-Americans uh, into the fold, more uh, Latino and Hispanic voters into the fold. And certainly, I think we can make a very healthy run at uh, at labor, um, the, the, the rank and file worker is becoming, I think, increasingly frustrated with what's going on in this country. And again, because our uh, the Democrat leaders are focused on things that are just not the right priority for the American people. And and we, we need to stay on that, I think, is a message. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think the Democrats really revealed that when they nominated Biden, because he is he is the last vestige of an earlier era of the Democratic Party that's allowed them to put this working class veneer on it all. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's, you know, whether, whether they can keep that on life support for 2024, it, you know, remains to be seen, but they're not, they're certainly not going to have that around beyond that uh, unless they change directions as a party. Mike Russell, vice president of communications at CRC advisors, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on six questions again, and for all of your work, particularly against uh, ESG just seems, uh, you know, so important and not enough people talking about that. But uh, thank you so much for being on Six Questions. Thanks so much, Trent. Great to be on. And uh, I want to wish uh, you and all the folks at Save Our States, you guys are doing just Herculean work here. 
to try to get people uh, up to speed, more informed and activated around these issues. We have a real fight ahead of us. And the work that you all are doing to uh, preserve the electoral, uh, electoral college, uh, maintain and enhance voter uh, integrity and confidence, uh, and now this new front that's opened up on uh, ranked choice voting. There's a lot of work ahead in the coming year, and uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm proud to be with you all in that fight. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you uh, viewing, listening to the podcast. I hope you have or have had a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. We'll be back in 2023 with uh, a lot, lot more episodes. If you have ideas uh, for the podcast, people you'd like to see us talk with, feel free to reach out. The best place to do that is probably at our uh, Save Our States Facebook page. We also have a uh, Facebook group, the Electoral College Defenders. Uh, for people who really want to get involved in this fight, there are going to be some big fights defending the Electoral College in 2023. We we already know that the other side is pushing hard in Maine and Michigan and Minnesota, several other places as well. And we're going to have state legislatures that will uh, be advancing measures to protect the Electoral College proactively, right? So we're not just on defense, we're also on offense at Save Our States. And all of this relies on you engaging at the state level. That's where this fight is. Go to saveourstates.com, find us on social media, follow us there. We'd love to be connected and uh, we'll see you in 2023.